Broadcasting to New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Sydney, London, and around the world, this is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG and online. We're at kpcg.fm coming up on this weekend edition. Headlines to look at today, including shooting and the death of two police officers uh, in Florida. Quite a bit of uh, violence against the police. We have an update on that. Also, a wonderful new musical last night at Armstrong Auditorium, the uh, Abraham Oratorio. And we're going to play a selection or two from that. That and plenty more coming up on this weekend edition of Trumpet Radio Live. This is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live. We're at 101.3 KPCG, and we're online at kpcg.fm. Have a live link at thetrumpet.com as well. I'm Dwight Falk. Thanks for spending some time with me as we uh, go into the weekend. Lots of stories to look at today. Colder weather uh, has been hitting the U.S. up north. Uh, that continues. We'll have a look at that. Also, uh, uh, police brutality, not in the sense of the police being brutal, but being brutalized. And that's really what's going on in many places uh, in the country, unfortunately. And that happened in Florida. We'll take a look at that. Also, some new studies about smartphone usage and uh, quite a few other stories to look at today. Last evening, we had a wonderful performance at Armstrong Auditorium here on the campus of Herbert W. Armstrong College. The uh, Abraham was performed. An oratorio had the uh, full orchestra and a uh, uh, choir and soloist. Just a tremendous performance. Hopefully, a lot of our local listeners were able to get out and see that. We had a good attendance. And uh, and then it was live-streamed as well for on the Internet for those that... Uh, uh, have access to that stream. So uh, we have a, a performance, uh, a wonderful performance last evening. We have a selection to uh, play. I thought we'd start the day off on a positive note by playing a uh, selection here from the uh, Abraham, and that was on Thursday evening at Armstrong Auditorium. Abraham.
a wonderful performance. The Abraham Oratorio performed Thursday evening at Armstrong Auditorium. thought I'd give you a little bit of a taste of that uh, in case you didn't get to hear it. And even if you did see it live, it's uh, nice to hear it again. And uh, we'll feature that music here on KPCG uh, at times moving forward. It's always great to have those new songs, uh, those great uh, uh, performances to, to play here on Trumpet Radio. It is a world that has a lot of negative headlines, and so it's, ha- it's always exciting to have some happy and positive things to, uh, to play, and, and those musicals uh, and musical performances certainly are uh, very positive and very encouraging. So we're glad to be able to bring that to you. This is Trumpet Radio Live, and if you'd like to uh, 
email us, you can do that. Send your uh, comments to comments at kpcg.fm. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at kpcgfm. We appreciate you uh, staying with us on some of those different platforms. Some of the headlines to take a look at for today do include the weather. Chicago Tribune reports that more spring snow in Chicago. Forecasters call April's start among the coldest in 130 years. We have a lot of listeners online up in Chicago at kpcg.fm and the trumpet.com's live link. And uh, so you, you've been bundled up, apparently. Chicago area residents, it says, may wake up to snow on the ground. This was uh, from back on Thursday. The latest reminder that winter weather grip is delaying so many spring rites of passage from Major League Baseball games to bridge lifting season on the Chicago River downtown. The parade of boats heading for slips offering the surest sign of warm weather ahead. So some things, I guess, have been delayed. They say, and if those early morning walks to the bus or train stop weren't convincing enough, forecasters say... This is the second coldest start to April across Chicago in 130 years. I don't think there's anyone that's 130 years old in Chicago, although I don't know that for certain, but uh, probably nobody remembers uh, it being that cold as it has been this year. The average temperature for April is usually 46.6 degrees in Chicago area, but this month is registering more than 10 degrees lower At 36.2 degrees, the Weather Service said. So is it climate change or global warming or global cooling or whatever they they talk about? Well, it's the weather, and it does change, but it has been significantly colder in Chicago. And up in Canada, it's uh, quite a bit colder as well. I know they've had snowstorms, and they've had ice. And, you know, just when you think uh, spring is here, because it is spring, then uh, winter uh, still won't let go with its icy grip. Here in Oklahoma, it hasn't been uh, uh, too bad, although we've had this strange roller coaster. We've been doing this for a while where it can get to be fairly warm and then quite a dip in temperatures. We've had that even this week. I think we were up, oh, close to 80, if I remember correctly, and then we're 50 for the weekend. Uh, At least on Saturday, that's what they're talking about in rain. So anyway, we'll see what comes this weekend. We do need some rain. And so hopefully we'll get that as our our water supplies are uh, dropping down. And as we talked about yesterday, a third of the U.S. is in uh, drought right now. Some more severe than others, but a third considered to be in uh, drought conditions. Well, really a terrible, terrible thing that's happening in the United States is this movement against police. And it's causing violence to... uh, come against the police in a higher level probably than what they'd face otherwise. It's a dangerous job, of course. Anytime the police are trying to, uh, you know, go take care of a situation, it's usually because something bad is happening and it can be violent. And so it's a very dangerous job. And police really, every day when they go to work, I mean, they are faced with the possibility that they're going to encounter a life and death situation. So that's why when Uh, Some of these reports come out, say, about a police officer doing something that people think isn't fair or just. And it may happen from time to time uh, where that is actually the case. Oftentimes the stories don't seem to really uh, point to actual police brutality. 
Uh, oftentimes, it just looks to be uh, people doing very unwise things and having bad interactions with the police. And uh, But again, for the police, they're facing life and death very often, and they're expected to be perfect and never make a mistake. It's just it's unreasonable for one. And uh, I think for everybody, it would be just a good idea to remember the police don't know, say, if you get pulled over for something as simple as a tra- you know, traffic violation, which hopefully doesn't happen too often, but it can happen, you know, that we would all keep in mind that the officer does not know who they're coming up on. They don't know, you know, if you're just an average citizen who happened to not notice the, the speed sign or if there's something more serious. So just being very cooperative, you know, very much um, ready to, to follow directions. You know, in, in almost every case, will keep people out of any difficulty. And again, there might be the rare exception, but that would be pretty rare. In any event, the reason I'm bringing this up is a headline about uh, two officers being shot, two Florida deputies shot dead while eating at a Chinese restaurant. Uh, all accounts are that they were minding their own business. Two deputies were killed when a man shot at them through a window while they were eating at a Chinese restaurant in Trenton, Florida. And that happened on Thursday afternoon. Gunman walked up to Ace China Restaurant and shot Sergeant Noel Ramirez, who was 30, and Deputy Taylor Lindsay, 25, about 3 p.m. That was according to the Gilcrest County Sheriff's Office, where the deputies worked. The adult male gunman was found dead outside the restaurant, Sheriff Robert D. Schultz said during a news conference, and officers did not release the man's identity or the cause of death. Uh, Schultz spoke in a news conference Thursday night describing the two officers as the best of the best. And Schultz stood with other Florida law enforcement officers during the press conference. And Schultz said the deputies' deaths weren't a political issue, but he asked this. He said, what do you expect happens when you demonize law enforcement to the extent that it's been demonized? That's a tremendous question. Well, what do people expect to have happen when the police are constantly uh, berated in the media, made out to be the ultimate bad guy and the ultimate villain, when in most cases they're doing a tremendous job under very difficult circumstances? What do people expect to happen if, again, as he says, that law enforcement is being demonized? Because that is what happens. And the media will report on this and then go their way. But they're the same ones in most cases that are reporting, you know, police brutality, as they would call it. Or, you know, politicians coming out at times, at least in the recent, uh, not too distant uh, past anyway, and uh, being critical of law enforcement. And you have celebrities and entertainers jumping on board. Well, what about these men that were shot dead in a restaurant? Now we don't know all the details yet, but there have been uh, there have been officer deaths in in 2018. Now, you know we're only partway into 2018. There's been at least 29 law enforcement officers across the U.S. that have died while on duty, with uh, 19 of the deaths caused by gunfire. Roughly 135 officers died in 2016, making it the deadliest year for police officers. In at least five years, you know, is that any? Is there any coincidence? Is it any coincidence that 2016 was the deadliest year for police officers being uh, killed, 
and you look at the way the media was, you look at the political climate, any, any, uh, you know, relation, any correlation there. Fox News determined uh, that that it was the deadliest year. It says while there were fewer deaths in 2017, the numbers weren't much better. A total of 129 officers died last year, and 46 of those deaths were caused by gunfire. So, as that police uh, chief said there, or sheriff rather, Robert D. Schultz uh, in Florida, he said, "What do you expect when you demonize law enforcement?" Well, in Baltimore, there's this story. And, of course, Baltimore has been full of so much violence and problems. And as the police have been told to sort of stand down over there, uh, the crime has risen quite a bit. And this uh, story says, Baltimore police commissioner apologizes for policing history, gets booed at a concert. Can you believe this? The Baltimore police commissioner apologizes for policing history? Uh, what is he apologizing for? How many people have been protected by the police? How many people have been saved by the police over the years? And, of course, there's always probably going to be one or two instances uh, where something wasn't done correctly. But for the most part, the police have been there to help. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I was when I was a child, which isn't super long ago, but it was you know it's been 30 years or so, the police were heroes in the communities. The police, the firemen, they would come to the grade school sometimes, or maybe I mean, even even with my children, sometimes we'd go to a store and the police would be there giving out stickers to the kids. I mean, they were looked at as as heroes in a lot of ways because they did they do a lot of good, and yet they're being made out to be the villains. Which which when you do that, of course, you see more violence against police. And then what's the result? Well, take a look at Baltimore. I mean, they, they're just a deadly city because in a lot of cases, the police aren't doing the job that really they should be doing because their hands are tied. So this Baltimore police commissioner apologizes, and he said, uh, and again, this is at some sort of a, oh, I guess it was a hip-hop concert. He says, I want to take about 20 seconds to apologize for all the things that the police have done dating back 200 years. And this, like, this guy has any idea. Has he been there for 200 years? Does he know what's happened? Uh, the, this particular commissioner uh, said that Wednesday at Eric B. and Rakim concert at Baltimore Soundstage. So you know that's an audience that obviously is uh, going to be thinking a little bit more about the police in probably a negative light because of just the, the way that uh, the media is talking about these things. And he says, 200 years ago, all the way to civil rights, all the way to the 80s, where crack was prevalent in the cities and it affected disproportionately African-American men. So he's making it racial. He said, all the way to the 90s, all the way to the 2000s, when we had zero tolerance. The commissioner went on to say, he promises changes will be made to policing in the future. Well, haven't they made, prom- or haven't they made uh, changes already where they just don't do anything? where they don't stop the people that look suspicious, they can't profile, quote-unquote. Haven't they done those things already? And what's the result, Ben? Is a Baltimore a utopia? I mean, are people clamoring to get into Baltimore? Uh, not to my knowledge. All the reports show that it's very violent and people are trying to get out. 
if they can. And I'm sure it has nice areas, too. Every city's kind of got its good areas and bad areas, unfortunately. But still, you just look at you look at uh, these comments here and um, it's it's just uh, uh, to me, it's outrageous. On a Thursday night, the president of Baltimore's police union issued this statement in response. He said, I'm not sure that a blanket apology covering 200 years is appropriate. And that's uh, worded very gently. He said law enforcement was created to protect and serve the citizenry despite race. And that is what we strive to do daily. And that's pretty accurate. Again, there might be a negative situation here or there. It can happen. But when you're talking about just a blanket statement, you know, apologizing for 200 years of police activity, uh, craziness. And, of course, the audience at a concert like that, I'm assuming, is kind of in the mood to be negative towards the police. Now, why would I say that? Well, you can look at just hip-hop songs, if you want to call it that. I guess it's the genre, that are anti-police. How many songs are there? There are a lot of them. There are a lot of them, and I have a list that I looked up. Some of the titles I can't even say because they're just so uh, inappropriate. But uh, some of the songs include uh, "Justice for Freddie." Uh, that's that, I think that Freddie Gray case. Um, "Sound of Da Police," "16 Shots," "911 is a Joke," "Constables," "G Code," "Cop Shot," "Police State." Who Got the Camera, uh, Illegal Search, Trapped, Open Fire, Violent, Officer Down, The Enemy, Good Cop, Bad Cop, No Surrender, uh, 30 Cops or More, Who Protects Us From You, Claiming I'm a Criminal, Riding Dirty, which I guess would be a reference to having contraband in a vehicle, uh, Buck a Cop, Pigs, uh, on and on it goes. Popo, which I guess is a sort of a slang term for the police. Uh, Road to the Precinct, New York City Cops, How to Kill a Cop, The Other White Meat, Who Called the Cops, Black Cop, Hip Hop Cops, Time for Us to Defend Ourselves, Gunfight, Cops Keep Firing, Criminal, uh Coffee, Donuts, and Death, What is the Law, Men in Blue, Fight Until the End, on and on it goes. And I'm sure there's a lot more than that. Those are the, I guess, popular ones. Not my genre, don't know. I guess I've heard of a few of the titles. So if you if you have that being put out there, and then you have officers getting shot, and then you have a, a you know somebody in Baltimore, one of the, the, the police officials apologizing and all this, where do you think this is going? I mean, this is this is outrageous. And the Trumpet.com's got some great write-ups about just the breakdown in law in this land. I mean, one of these titles was what is I what did I, what did I say? What is the law or something to that effect? That's a good question. What is the law? Is there a law of the land? Is there a law that we should be following? Is there a law that should be kept? That's a good question. I doubt. I don't know what that song is. I haven't heard it. I, I doubt that they're uh, getting to the heart of the matter on it. So it's really interesting. Now, people could say, hey, look, you know, you can listen to that stuff. It doesn't affect you. It doesn't matter. 
there's plenty of studies that show that it does. We all know that it does. If you listen to a negative song with negative lyrics towards a group or an individual, um, you're going to feel that same way, at least on some level, especially if you're saturated by the music and you have it around all the time. You're going to be very much affected by it. There is this one interesting study about music and what it does, and it says even short pieces of happy or sad music can affect us. One study showed that after hearing a short piece of music, participants were more likely to interpret a neutral expression as either happy or sad to match the tone of the music they heard. This also happened with other facial expressions, but most was most notable for those that were close to neutral. So if you're listening to a song that's sad, or you have recently, and you see somebody with a neutral expression, people tend to interpret them as being sad. If you're listening to happy music, and you see somebody with a neutral expression, then the listener tends to interpret that as happy. Well, okay, what if we took this further? If you're listening to music that is very angry and aggressive towards, say, the police, and you see a police being very neutral in his actions and expressions, how would, how would the person, how would the listener of that music interpret that officer? I'm assuming, based upon these studies, that they would interpret them as aggressive, as a threat, as an enemy. I mean, wouldn't you assume that based upon these studies? If you're listening to music that's continually, continually attacking uh, the law of the land in, the terms of, in terms of the police, then how, how are you going to feel about them? It's really interesting to see, and it, uh, it doesn't break down just along racial lines. I mean, this music will affect anybody that way. Uh, maybe some more than others, uh, depending on personality and situation and all of that, but it will affect people. One of the songs that's really, I guess, been known for a long time against the police, I can't even say the title because it's inappropriate, but uh, it's been around since I think it was... Uh, late 80s or maybe the 90s. I remember when I was a teenager, it being a song that was out there. And there was uh, some young people, there were two young people that I, I knew, two young fellows a little older than me, and they were not living in a bad community or anything. They didn't have any negative interactions with the police or anything like that, But uh, to my knowledge anyway. But they thought this was a great song. And I remember them saying, like, oh, yeah, you got to hear this song, and it's so great, and they wanted to sing it all the time and everything. And these are, these are white guys, okay, just to get that out there. And, and uh, so I, they were really into it. They just thought it was the greatest thing. And it wasn't but a year or two later, one of the guys killed himself. So I don't know his whole situation, but I just my two memories of the fella in particular that stand out is that he was really, really into this type of music, and then he obviously was so negative in his own life that he took his life, which is a tragic event. Now, obviously not everybody that listens to that particular song would do that. But I think that song didn't help him, that's for sure. So uh, really just interesting when you look at um, what's going on uh, with the police and with the thinking in this country. And then this, this police uh, guy from Baltimore coming out and, and apologizing at this rap hip-hop concert to people, you know that's not going the right direction. You know that's going to be a bad situation. It's actually the Baltimore uh, police commissioner. So pretty high up there at the top. Uh, how do you think things are going to end up in Baltimore? Keep checking your headlines on Baltimore. Uh, it's not going to get better, that's for sure. So 
hate to report on those stories, but it's what's going on. So that's uh, that's coming out of uh, Baltimore, and then also those two officers shot and killed. That was in Florida. You're listening to Trumpet Radio Live here at 101.3 KPCG. We're online at kpcg.fm. We have a live link at thetrumpet.com. This is the weekend edition. You probably have a smartphone uh, like I do, and uh, there's a lot of studies coming out about smartphones and uh, how they're affecting people. We've talked about this a bit, but this is a new study, and it's from studyfinds.org. It says, smartphone addiction increases loneliness, isolation. And they say it's no different from substance abuse. So some pretty serious uh, information they're finding out. They say, now, and now again, it doesn't mean that just because you have one that this will be the case for you, but uh, they're talking about people that are really addicted to it, and particularly the younger people, the teenagers that seem to be more engaged with, that, uh, with the technology. Uh, they write that it's well known that smartphone, or more broadly digital addiction, so it can be even more than just smartphones, can result in many negative mental effects on people over time. Recent research even found it creates a brain imbalance in teens. And now a new study finds that overattachment to your phone can cause serious social problems, boosting feelings of loneliness and isolation, while worsening anxiety and depression symptoms. So nobody wants that. You don't want to be uh, feeling lonely and isolated and having anxiety and depression. But yet that seems to be some of the effects of the overuse of smartphones and other digital uh, addictions. They say smartphones have become useful, of course, everyday tools that essentially manage our daily lives. Um, They can, I guess, if you want them to. They have the calendars on there, calorie monitors, sleep aids, everything you could want, and then some you can put into an app. Uh, But they say whether it's reading push notifications, responding to dings and vibrations, or constantly refreshing one's Facebook news feed on the go, the need for phone time is becoming a more serious problem. And sometimes maybe some of the the things that are being done on the phones are essential for business, but uh, probably in most cases they are not, especially when you look at teenagers. Researchers behind the study conducted at San Francisco State University likened smartphone addiction to opioid dependency. Pretty strong, opioid dependency. Arguing that overuse of a mobile device is no different from substance abuse. So I've heard that they have detox centers, technology detox centers, where people get away from their devices for a time and try to uh, live without them. It'd be interesting, right? I mean, even... For uh, myself, sometimes it's interesting to say, okay, to try to say, well, I'm gonna, I'm just going to put the phone away and not worry about it uh, you know, for an hour, two hours, and go do something else. It's hard to do. Even if I'm not on it, I feel like it should be near me, you know, just in case somebody's trying to get a hold of me or something like that. And I'm not saying that's a bad idea. Sometimes people really need that, but um, it can be addictive, and they're finding out that it's hard to... It's hard to uh, quit the smartphone (laughs) if you wanted to and causing some behavioral issues. They say the behavioral addiction of smartphone use begins forming neurological connections in the brain in ways similar to how opioid addiction is experienced by people taking Oxycontin for pain relief gradually. 
And if you know, of course, anything about opioids and Oxycontin, that's a major issue. That's, if people get hooked on that, that's serious business. And that was explained by Eric Pepper. He's co-lead author of the study and professor of health and education at uh, the school that he's at there. I think it's in San Francisco. The ubiquity of smartphones today betrays their usefulness, but app developers and tech companies are highly incentivized to create features that draw your eyes and your attention as much as possible. Pepper says more eyeballs, more clicks, more money. So that's what it always is at the end of the day. Anything that's highly addictive, it's it's a money maker, and that's why it exists. And if if people can get you to click on, you know, apps and so forth, then it's it's a money maker for them in some way. I don't know the exact revenue stream there in every case, but obviously it's developed. Apps are developed to be used, and uh, and ultimately it's to make some money for the app uh, designer. Uh, the Pepper and co-author Richard Harvey surveyed 135 students at the university about their smartphone usage and general digital habits. The researchers found that the students that used their phones the most reported feeling more lonely and isolated than peers less dependent on their devices. The most frequent users also reported higher levels of depression and anxiety, as was mentioned before. It's funny how that is, and I think we see this in, say, drug abuse where it's, it destroys the person using it and yet they don't want to stop using it because there's an addiction to it. Now, you know, I think most people would say, well, come on. I mean, the phone's not as serious and probably not. But at the same time, it is starting to affect people. And how does it affect the younger people, especially that are really growing up on these devices? You know, what type of a person do they become after 10 years of being hooked on a smartphone, uh, what does it do? How does it change their uh, development? Uh, I've mentioned it before just because I happen to notice it, but it's relevant to the story that, uh, say, in my neighborhood, there's a, a couple of bus stops where the kids get on and, and get off to uh, go to school and come home. And uh, sometimes I pass at the, the that time where they're getting on the bus and then I might be coming back when they're getting off at times. And and so most of them are on their phone getting onto the bus, and those same kids are on their phone getting off of the bus. And in one particular case, I think the, the person walks probably half a mile down my road to their house from the bus stop, and the whole way they're just directly on their phone. So I just you know hope they don't get hit by a car. Thankfully, it's a low-traffic area, but still uh, very much uh, attached to the phone. And I know how easy it is to do that. Um, I certainly have done that myself, and I didn't grow up with them because they weren't around. But what about these younger people growing up with them, where it really is their life uh, in a lot of ways, or it's a major, major part of their life? That's what people are starting to wonder about is what, how, how does it affect them? Um, what kind of a person does it become? How does it affect their brain and the way they think? So if you're a parent, it's worth thinking about with your kids. And then just looking, just looking at, well, first of all, or additionally, I should say, the fact that the information out there that people put into their devices, you know, for apps and so forth on the Internet, uh, that can get stolen, it's been used or be sold. That can be a problem in and of itself, just security issues. But then um, just even emotional development. The fact that people that have designed a lot of these technologies don't let their kids use it or they've said that they don't. Um, it should give us pause to at least consider 
uh, usage and amount of usage and all of those things. I mean, we live in a world where if you didn't have access to the internet, I don't know how you would really do much depending, depend on occupation and depend on where you live and so forth. But, you know, it is, it is an essential tool and it is, uh, there is a lot of good to it. So I'm not in any way against it. I have, like I said, a smartphone of my own that I use, but it's just a matter of how much is it being used. Something to consider. And, um, and the more, the more studies they do, the more they find out that the results are not great when people are really, really uh, addicted, as they would put it. Uh, Pepper and his team theorized that the loneliness increase for people addicted to the smartphones and digital technology is due to the replacement of face-to-face interaction with screen-based interaction. Uh, which is funny, you know, even that you think about FaceTime. I mean, they should really call it screen time, right? Because you're, you're not really face-to-face. You are in a way, but not directly. Um, and that's a great tool for people that are, you know, distances apart. And they, it's a great, great tool for that to be able to see each other and communicate. But it's just uh, it for if people are, uh, say, replacing human interaction, face-to-face interaction, and focus more on just being on their screens, even though they're interacting with people, uh, it's doing something different to their minds, uh, at least as far as they can tell. They say uh, when people are just going on screen-based interaction, a lot of times that cuts off forms of simultaneous communication, such as body language. The researchers also found that those who use their smartphones the most were constantly multitasking. And this is a really good point here. I've done this, and uh, it's it's worth thinking about in, in our quickened-paced uh, a quickly paced society, it says the study found that those who use their smartphones the most were constantly multitasking when doing things like studying, eating, or watching other media, and the constant activity allows little time for the body and mind to relax and regenerate and causes what the researchers called semitasking, in which the students performed several tasks at once but did them all about half as well as if they did them one at a time. So, you know, raise your hand if you're guilty of semi-tasking. Semi-truck drivers need not apply. That doesn't count. But semi-tasking, right? I mean, I think everybody's probably done that. You're doing three or four things at one time, and you feel like, I'm getting a lot done, but you make mistakes. Or you just don't do it as well. Uh, Studying in particular. You know, it's, well... Even years ago, you know, the idea of trying to study for something while sort of watching TV at the same time, not effective, at least not for me. And so now they have the phones right there in a lot of cases, and they're doing something on the phone while they're maybe studying and for, a, for an exam and while they're doing something else. And it's, our minds have a hard time doing multiple things at once and doing them well. We'd like to think we can, but we don't do that as well. Even if we perform the tasks okay, as it says, not as well as if we did them one at a time. So is it a time saver? Probably not, actually, to be doing all of these things. So there's a lot to pay attention to there, I think, as far as the use of smartphones. There's quite a few studies out there. Here's a few other just titles that you could look at if you wanted to. And this is at uh, uh, studyfinds.org. Uh, uh, doctor says teens addicted to smartphone, Internet have brain imbalance. Another study shows many smartphone apps highly effective at treating depression. So that might be a positive one, I guess. But that, I guess, kind of flies in the face of other studies. And you're going to get some contradiction in these, but I think you can look for an overall trend. 
It says mere presence of a smartphone causes brain drain, according to a study. Uh, one in three can't get through a meal without looking at phone, according to a survey. We talked about that one a while ago. Addicted to social media? Question. It says blame your personality. <laughs> they like to do that and say, well, it's not it's not behavioral. Like, you couldn't change it. It's your personality. You can't help it. But uh, I, I would say that's not true. However, some might be more easily addicted uh, than others. They say, are you addicted? Survey finds 40% of smartphone use is compulsive. There was a story a while ago. It was talked about on the Trumpet Daily Radio show about how some teens said they just keep opening and closing apps because, uh, well, they I don't know. They don't, there's no real reason to other than they're bored. So they're just kind of uh, uh, compulsively doing it. And then they say um, more teens sleep-deprived than ever before, thanks to smartphones. Sleep-deprived. And so that's true, too. It's hard to uh, get to bed at a proper time when the the uh, smartphone is glowing at you and buzzing and dinging and trying to uh, get your attention. So it's not, not to say smartphones are bad or they shouldn't be around or anything like that. Uh, they can be used very effectively, but it's just a matter of uh, wisdom and uh, being smart with the time and where the time goes. So an interesting study there that's from studyfinds.org. Smartphone addiction increases loneliness and isolation, and they think it's no different than uh, substance abuse in terms of being addicted to it. So interesting uh, write-up there. You're listening to Trumpet Radio Live. Here we're at 101.3 at KPCG. And I'm Dwight Falk. Thanks for, thanks for spending some time with me here today on this uh, weekend edition uh, this story, depending on when you hear this program, might have uh, passed already, but it's worth uh, noting and just, just of interest anyway. It's from Boston. It says, high alert. State warns drivers to use caution on 420. That's Friday. And you think, why? What's 420? Maybe you know. I was ignorant of this, and I've learned something today, and I'm going to pass it along. The state there, and of course, I could, this could be a lot of states, uh, is asking drivers to be on high alert on Friday. As research shows, the, the April 20 date brings an increase in the number of drivers under the influence of marijuana. So driving under the influence of marijuana is a very, very dangerous thing. A recent study by the Journal of American Medical Association found a 12% increase in deadly crashes on April 20th after 4.20 p.m. So you notice the numbers, 4.20, 4.20. What's significant about that? Well, they say the number 4.20 has become associated with marijuana use. The reason why traces back to a California high school in the 1970s. As the story goes, students would meet at 4.20 p.m. each day on campus to smoke marijuana. The group developed a relationship with the Grateful Dead and the band helped the term become more widespread. The Grateful Dead, of course, is that rock band. I, uh, I think they're all dead now, or most of them. But uh, anyway, the Grateful Dead, they were, they were San Francisco area and known for being into drugs and so forth. It says, on Thursday, one day ahead of 420, State Police Colonel Kerry Gilpin and Secretary of Public Safety and Security Dan Bennett warned drivers not to get behind the wheel if they are under the influence. They said driving while impaired is both dangerous and it's illegal. Driver responsibility plays a huge role in keeping our roads safe. 
whether we're talking about marijuana or alcohol, and we want to remind drivers not to take the wheel if they are impaired in any way. That sounds good, right? But how about just not smoking it in the first place? Uh, but thinking about driving, I mean, if, if, if it's legal to smoke it, which it is in some states, and people want to smoke it, and it seems to be uh, something people really get into and get addicted to, um, what's going to prevent them from driving? Or how long would they wait to drive? Would they, And would they even know if they're impaired? I mean, isn't the whole point of being impaired that you kind of don't know you're impaired, at least on some level? I'm speaking a little bit uh, as a fool here because I don't totally know. I've not been involved in these uh, activities. But nevertheless, I just can't imagine that uh, somebody would be honest about whether they're impaired or not in most cases, or maybe even know. But it's illegal to do it, and so today... Um, there's a dangerous day for 20. It'll be interesting to check the stats uh, as the weekend goes on and see if, if there have been more problems. Hopefully not. Hopefully no problems. But, again, this is something that can happen. Uh, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention said marijuana can lead to slow driver reaction time, impaired decision-making, reduced coordination, and distorted perception. They say drivers who are impaired are a danger to everyone on the road and to themselves said Gilpin, our troopers will be stopping any motorists who are driving dangerously and putting others at risk. So uh, there's going to be a big meeting out in San Francisco on Friday, 420. Officials outline crowd control plans with as many as 15,000 people expected to visit Golden Gate Park on Friday to celebrate the first 420 since marijuana became legal in California. City officials are planning on how to deal with the massive crowds. So it's legal now. Everybody can come out and smoke their marijuana in San Francisco. Um, I would not want to be in San Francisco today. Certainly not at the Golden Gate Park. <laughs> but So I, I had no idea about this. This is completely new to me. So I'm sure some people were very aware of the 420 thing, but I had no clue. But uh, anyway, the reason it's relevant, obviously, is just uh, be careful when you're driving. Uh, I guess you can't really change your schedule too much. That's just the way it goes. You have to drive when you have to drive sometimes. But um, they're, it's serious enough where they're actually warning people to be careful because, as it said, there's a 12% increase in deadly crashes on April 20th after 4.20 p.m. It's another bad fruit of marijuana. It's just a bad fruit. There's no way to say that it's anything but that. But people want to go along with it, so... Anyway, just something to pay attention to if you're uh, driving around out there. I uh, wanted to point your attention to the trumpet brief from yesterday. Uh, Brad McDonald sent this out. Pay attention to rising anti-Semitism in Europe and Britain. And by the way, if you don't get the trumpet brief, it's free. It's an email. Uh, it gets sent to your, sent to your inbox uh, Monday through Friday. And you can sign up for it at thetrumpet.com. And again, it's a free a free uh, little uh, write-up there about a top story of the day or sometimes some news. And, uh, and then you can usually find some longer pieces about the topic if interested. But he said, I visited London last week to listen to Melanie Phillips' lecture on anti-Semitism in Britain and Europe. The lecture addressed a specific question, is it time for Jews to leave Europe and Britain? Can you believe that's even a question now? It's crazy. <clears throat> and he points to that. He says, the fact that this question is even being discussed in Britain in the 21st century is telling. It's surreal to think that Jew hatred in, quote, sophisticated society 
is now so dire that smart, rational Jews are actually contemplating fleeing Europe and Britain. Aren't Britain and Western Europe supposed to be the gold standard of liberalism? It's a great question. I mean, isn't this where everybody's free and equal, and that's what we're trying to do, and we just want equality? Well, uh, it's not happening there in Britain and Western Europe, and of course even in the U.S. you could say that as well. And he points to this attack this last week that I think we mentioned. There was this, this guy got attacked over there by some Arabs, and they called him Jew and hit him, hit him with a belt. I think there was two Jew, Jewish boys involved. And uh, the German government expressed shock over that attack. That was on Tuesday. That was in the city's trendy uh, Prenzlauer Berg neighborhood. And then it was caught on video, of course. You probably have seen it. Uh, Israeli broadcaster Khan published an interview with a 21-year-old victim who was slightly injured by the belt and identified him uh, as Israeli citizen Adam Armush. He said he was leaving his Berlin home when the three people came and started cursing at them. He said he was terrified by the assault, as you can imagine anybody would be. He said, I trembled until an hour later all the time. It was really upsetting and was very stressful. German Chancellor Angela Merkel condemned the attack and said, quote, We have anti-Semitism among German citizens, unfortunately, and we also have anti-Semitism from the Arabic-speaking world. She vowed her government would tackle it with all our might. The German government appointed a career diplomat earlier this month to coordinate the fight against anti-Semitism. Well, good luck. You know, there was a, some German hip-hop group that just won an award, and they have anti-Semitic lyrics. Again, uh, how is that music affecting people? Good or bad? Definitely not good. Uh, the head of the Central Council of Muslims in Germany Eamon Maziak demanded punishment for the perpetrators, tweeting that it makes me angry to see such violence full of hatred. And uh, so it's been attacked, you know, and so forth. According to the RIAS group, some 947 anti-Semitic incidents, including 18 attacks and 23 threat, uh, sorry, 23 threats were documented in Berlin last year. 947 anti-Semitic incidents. So it's on the rise, and it is something to uh, pay attention to, and the trumpet brief draws your attention to that in a very good way. So make sure you sign up for those if you haven't, and uh, get on that list. Brand new Kia David program this weekend, too. This is a great program. Make sure uh, you watch this, listen for the audio here on KPCG. The video is at thetrumpet.com, and it'll be on TV as well. The Religion of Washington and Lincoln, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, changed the course of American history through righteous leadership. What was the source of their strength, and how can you draw from it? Really good questions. And uh, considering the division in the United States right now, and the lack of religion and morality, and the clamoring to undo the Constitution or undo some amendments— or um, you know, become socialist. Some people want to be a want to be communist. Uh, how about what President Washington and President Lincoln thought, and how did they live, and what did they do? It's worth considering. They're the two greatest presidents in U.S. history. I think most everyone would agree with that. There may be a few others on the list as well, but they certainly were tremendous in what they did, and. Why were they so successful, and how can we learn any lessons from that today personally? Certainly as a nation, if we would. 
So really great program today. It's a new Key of David program, and make sure you listen for that over the weekend. Of course, the Trumpet Daily Radio Show as well. And the Trumpet.com have a lot about something that a few, I don't know, just even months ago seemed all like a conspiracy theory. But now it's it's uh, being exposed more and more for the reality that it is, and that's the deep state in the U.S. There's a really cool graphic on that where they have the it's a White House on the top above the ground, or it's a Capitol building, I guess, and then the uh, like this these deep roots underground. Very effective, very very effective visual. And there is a major major issue with the deep state in the U.S. trying to. Uh, really overthrow the elected government. I mean, that sounds like out of a movie, right? It's like a movie plot. But they say sometimes that truth is stranger than fiction. And in this case, that is the case. So make sure you look at thetrumpet.com. There's a few videos there, a few write-ups, and then, of course, several Trumpet dailies from this week that talk about that uh, topic and this new James Comey book and what's going on there. So really important that you look at these things and um, see what is really going on here in the United States. So that's all at thetrumpet.com. Also, the Trumpet Hour Week in Review program comes up this weekend and watch Jerusalem. So if you were thinking, what am I going to do with my weekend? I'm going to be so bored. Now you don't have to be. There's plenty to uh, listen to and to look at here at KPCG and then, of course, at thetrumpet.com as well. One last note today and for this week. This is uh, something that I was uh, watching a few news stories on lately, and um, it's really quite a quite a disaster brewing here in the U.S. And it is the dreaded student loan debt. Many many people are struggling with student loans, or maybe able to make some payments, but they're they're on the precipice of uh, falling into trouble. And uh, so I had some numbers here that I thought were just interesting to consider. The economy is, by some measures, improved, improving temporarily at least. But there's a lot of debt in the United States, and there's a massive amount of student loan debt. And if you're a young person going into college, you might want to think about it. And uh, if you uh, have them, well, I mean, it is what it is. So you got to deal with the situation, and it can be dealt with. But uh, And there's some great books at thetrumpet.com that really give some good details about money management. But uh, here are the numbers. Uh, they say it's a negative sum game for both student borrowers and the economy. According to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, student loan debt has reached a new milestone. And, and this was a while ago. This was a few years back, so it's probably higher today. But it crossed the $1.2 trillion mark and $1 trillion of that in federal student loan debt. $1.2 trillion, and that number is probably bouncing around because I'm sure some of it gets paid back and then it gets added to. The Economist reported in uh, June 2014 that the U.S. student loan debt exceeded $1.2 trillion, uh, with over 7 million debtors in default. Can't pay it. In 2014, there was approximately $1.3 trillion of outstanding student loan debt in the U.S. that affected 44 million borrowers who had an average outstanding loan balance of $37,172. If you ever watch or listen to uh, Dave Ramsey, he's a money management guy. He's pretty entertaining, I think. He has some good common sense uh, advice on some things. And uh, when people call his show and they say... Um, 
you know, got student loans. He says, how much are they? And they'll say, oh, it's $90,000. He's like, well, who's the doctor or the lawyer? <laughs> and oftentimes uh, nobody's a doctor or a lawyer. His point is, okay, you spent all that money, so you're a lawyer now, you're a doctor now, you're in a profession where you're going to earn a good uh, salary, have a chance of paying this back, and uh, very rarely is a person a doctor or a lawyer. Not that it would be good to get into that much debt anyway, but I th- think you get the point there. So it's kind of funny. Uh, sad, but but somewhat humorous. Uh, they say uh, student debt, uh, 68% of the 2015 bachelor's degree recipients graduated with student loan debt, and that average was $30,100 for the uh, bachelor degree. Standard repayment plan for federal student loans puts borrowers on a 10-year track to pay off their debt, but research has shown the average bachelor's degree holder takes 21 years to pay off his or her loans under it's like getting a mortgage under federal income based repayment options remaining debt is forgiven after 20 years i don't know if that's uh still the case there, there's they look at those rules from time to time but uh anyway quite a bit what's the average uh monthly payment people are looking at usually about $280 that's the average some a lot higher some a lot lower uh but about 280 300 per month it's like a car payment Although car payments are going up, by the way, uh, the average car payment on a new vehicle is $479 a month. And sometimes those are 72-month terms. So it's a lot of money to pay back. And uh, some cases people say, well, hey, I need an education. You know, it's, it's the way it goes. But there's better ways to do it sometimes. Uh, Herbert Armstrong College, where we're broadcasting from, uh, students, if they do their part, and most do, they graduate with no debt because there's a student work program where they work as they go to school to help pay for their school. And so uh, there's there's ways you can do it. You can work your way through school and so forth. Education can be great if it's the right education, but there's a lot of student loan debt out there, and uh, a lot of times people cannot pay it, and they're in a tough spot because of it. So I hope you're not in that position. And, again, if you are, I mean, there's ways to work through it, and you just have to keep going um, and uh, apply God's laws of finance and uh can clear those things up, but it's a just a major issue, and it's sad when you see some of the stories of how people are really under the burden of this type of debt. So I thought it was worth uh, noting some of those numbers. That's all the time we have for today on Trumpet Radio Live. Make sure you listen for the Key of David program. It's a new one in the Trumpet Daily Radio Show coming up here in a bit. Thanks for spending some time with me. I'm Dwight Falk. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you again on Monday. listening to Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG.